you've been tracking with us, you know we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and it's been so special in this season of our church to see a book of the Bible speaking to us right where we're at. I would highly encourage you to check out the past two weeks if you haven't been with us. They're on YouTube, uh, they're on Apple Podcasts, they're on Spotify, and you can always keep track and listen to previous sermons as well. We've been talking about how the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, wrote a letter to a church that he founded. But this was a couple of years after he founded that church. So he's imprisoned in Rome, writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. Very important city, very strategic city, very multi-ethnic city. But it's a church on the brink of division. Because you got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who just can't see eye to eye on multiple different things. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to illustrate how unity with Christ causes humility and reconciliation to happen in unlikely relationships. And I just love to remind you all of that every week because in this season of being American, it's huge to remember that the gospel has the capacity to disarm division through humility. When you know you've been united with Christ in the family of God, it gives you the capacity to go about your life in relationships different. And so the first half of this letter is mostly Paul preaching the gospel and making these supernatural realities of what Jesus has done known to us. We talked about glorious grace. Last week we talked about breaking through darkness. And I hope that those sermons were encouraging to you. But if you ask me at the beginning of this series, okay, you're doing a whole series on one of the most rich letters ever written with which passage are you the most excited about preaching? It would be a toss-up between several, but I would have probably said at the beginning, the beginning of Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is the most concise definition of what the word gospel means. So gospel is a word that I always tell you, you need to know what that means. Gospel, although yes, it is a genre of music, it means so much more. And it's, that's not a churchy word that we can just throw around without defining Gospel means good news. It's at the center of who we are as a church. It's at the center of the story of the scriptures. It's the good news that Jesus has accomplished by his blood, by his life, death, burial, and resurrection, what we could never accomplish and brought us back to life into a right relationship with our heavenly father. But if you wanted a step-by-step clear picture of what is the gospel from the scriptures, and you just wanted to sit down with somebody and they said, what is the gospel? Define it for me. It's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And so I can't wait to bring you this sermon. I cannot wait to show you all that God has given me, and I'm not going to waste any time. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over this space. Come on. This is so good, y'all. We've had some intense Bible drills at our evening gatherings, and I like to keep it more light at the 9 a.m., but you know, God could do something unlikely. We're believing for breakthrough. So if you are not single, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to remove yourself from this drill, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. But if you're at the 9 a.m. and proudly and boldly available and believing for more from God, hold your Bible up all over this space. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. I love it. Was so different than the night services. We had a we had a go ahead and turn to Ephesians two, guys. It's over. Um, we, we had a stand up Bible drill last week at the seven p.m. and it was uh, something we'll never do again. Ephesians <laughs> chapter two, verse one. The definition of the gospel. And while we could spend all of our time on verses one through ten, I'm just going to read the first seven verses, and we're going to camp out there today. Ephesians 2, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now I could keep going. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is so memorable that there's a tendency to focus all your attention on that and miss the gold that we just read. So we're just going to look at 1 through 7 today and then next week going to get to everybody's favorite. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith and it's going to be powerful because next Sunday my wife, Courtney Fidel, is going to be the one who is talking about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 in our online gathering. And I'm so excited because she has a book coming out called Grace is Enough. And she's in this crowd right now. And so, I, babe, I wish you showed up at a gathering where people appreciated the fact that you're ready to pour into the life of our church. But they'll probably clap for you later today. It's not too late, guys. All right. I'm sorry I can be a smart aleck sometimes on stage, guys. I'm, I am growing up, though. I, there have been many moments in the last month where I've been like, oh, that's what maturity is. Okay. I want to give you my title straight out of this passage. This installment of our Ephesians series is called Rich in Mercy. Rich in Mercy. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, God is so rich. God is so rich. He's loaded. He's so rich. I want you to know that the mercy of God is something that you have probably misunderstood for a long time. And we're going to have an encounter with the scriptures today that I think is going to open our eyes to how God wants to meet us right where we are today. So when we talk about the mercy of God, we're talking about love that responds to a need in an unmerited way. Mercy is when love responds to a need in an unmerited way. And there's a dangerous tendency we have of interpreting mercy as forgiveness in such a way that the only thing we see when we hear something like God is rich in mercy is that God is a God of forgiveness. And he is. I don't want to take anything away from forgiveness. In fact, there are many of you in this room today who need to be reminded of the fact that you've been set free from your sins, that Jesus has paid the price for you. And trust me, in this sermon, you're going to feel the weight of that. But never diminish your view of mercy to just forgiveness. Mercy is the supernatural ability of a holy God to respond with love instead of judgment to sinners who rightfully deserve the opposite. And mercy is God's ability to meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus today. So for some of you, the mercy you need from God today is not just a word that says, I forgive you. It's a word that says, I'm with you. I'm with you in what you're struggling with. I'm with you in your loneliness. I'm with you in the fact that you want to give up. For others of you, it's provision. You're going, I've been tested before, but never like 2020 and wondering, God, how in the world are you going to provide? Not just financially, maybe through a relationship or maybe through an open door, or maybe through just answers and direction about what's next. And if you could be really honest, you love all the songs about forgiveness, but you're not like wallowing in your sin this morning. You're wallowing in self-pity. You're wallowing in anxiety. And you're going, I need a God who doesn't just forgive me, but a God whose mercy can extend beyond forgiveness to actually meet me in my very need right where I'm at. 
And the common thread of whatever issue you're carrying into this space, even if you don't even have a relationship with God, the common thread that I see across the board is an impoverished view of the mercy of God. So I want this to land. I try to think in ways that will connect the gospel to so many different age groups. One of the beautiful things about Auburn Community Church is that we are a multi-generational church. One of the amazing challenges of doing this every week is making the gospel just as relevant to a 13-year-old as you do to a 65-year-old. So I'm thinking like across the board, if there was something I could pinpoint that is the direct tension that people are carrying in Auburn Community Church, I would say every single person in this room and every person who's coming later today, their view of God's mercy in this moment looks like poverty compared to how rich in mercy he really is. And if you could get a true view of how rich your God is in his ability to provide for your moment-by-moment needs and your literal need for his presence today, I think God could do something so different. So as we preach the gospel, and we're going to walk through this passage and look at what the gospel is and how God meets our needs and forgiveness through Christ Jesus. But I want to ask you today, don't settle for mere forgiveness. Press in for more of who God is. And when you look at this passage, the reason why we're looking at the part where it says God who is rich in mercy is I think there's a tendency for us to just look at something like this and look at, okay, we had a problem. We were separated from God. We're going to hell. God brought a solution in Jesus and made us alive in Christ. Yes, praise his name. That is the gospel. But right in the middle of this presentation of the gospel, we get this beautiful glimpse into who God is in that equation. So we're going to go through the equation, and I'm going to like clearly define. This is what the good news of Jesus is. But right in the middle of it, I want you to see that your God is not just putting together these tactics towards saving you. Your God is a loving, relational, heavenly Father who has a personality, who has a bend, who has a natural disposition towards you. And it's not mechanical. It's relational. So let's do this. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3. By the way, whenever you preach the gospel, don't start at the cross. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. Don't call me a heretic. Don't start at the cross. Too many of us, when we preach the gospel, we're like, Jesus died for you. And you haven't even told people why they needed that yet. So we just jump to the good news without living in the bad news, and people don't appreciate the weight of what God did for them. So Paul starts with bad news when he preaches the gospel. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Here's the problem. The gospel begins with the glory of God and the lostness of man. And when those two things collide, you get the spiritually dead condition that you and I were born into. God is glorious, God is holy, and he has created humanity to perfectly reflect his image. But because of sin, you and I develop this condition called spiritual blindness, or what it means to be spiritually dead. But Paul doesn't go, as for you, you used to do bad things. He gets to that, but Paul's version of the sins we commit are the fruit of being dead in our sin, not the root. The root problem of what it means to be separated from God is that you and I are spiritually dead. We're not bad people. We're not people who mess up sometimes. We're not people who need to work on memorizing the Ten Commandments. We are spiritually bankrupt and dead and separated from God forever. And what does the passage say? It says that we are gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
The condition that we are born into before God is a condition where the only rightful response of a holy God is to send us to hell forever. And that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable for most of us because most of us have a man-centered view of sin. So we go, okay, we're, we're sinful. I get that. We mess up. We tarnish the image of God. But why? Why is God's response eternal wrath? Like, isn't that justice just a little bit off? Like, when somebody sins against you, a man-centered view of sin interprets the severity of sin based on the severity of the action. So it's like if somebody steals something from you, you don't want them to burn in hell. Like you're like, I just maybe, you know, want somebody to steal something from them. I maybe, this is a human way of thinking, by the way, not saying I share in this. Um, but you're like, you know, I want some sort of justice for that. But it seems to me like God's justice is a little bit off because his response to our sinfulness, to our disobedience, is that he has no choice but to send people to hell forever. What is wrong with this God? And it's not what is wrong with this God, it is what is wrong with us. A man-centered view of sin interprets sin according to the severity of the action. A God-centered view of sin interprets the severity of the sin according to the one who is sinned against. Now, you sin against a rock, there's not going to be any consequences for that. You sin against a human being, and our justice is quickly interpreted based on the severity of the action. You sin against a holy God. And this is where our view of God just has to expand. We are talking about a God whose name is consuming fire. We're not talking about a teddy bear in the sky who just wants to hug everybody and tell them it's going to be okay. We're talking about the God of glory. We're talking about the sunset that many of us watched last night and the sunrise that was so beautiful this morning, painted by the hand of our God. And every single ounce of all of creation has only ever responded to his voice with a resounding yes. You want to know why the wind and the waves listened to Jesus when he was on that boat with the disciples? It's because they recognized his voice. That's the voice that made us. So we do what he says. Waves, you flow here, stop here. Mountains, rise here. Giraffe, stretch your neck here. Like literally every ounce of creation has only ever said yes to the creator. Accept us. We are born into a condition that has the audacity to look at a holy God and go, no. And that rebellion before the throne of the king of the universe merits no other response than separation and wrath and judgment. And Paul goes, this is all of us. This is not like the worst of the worst, the Hitlers of the world. This is not just like reserved for a few. All of us were by nature deserving of wrath, Paul says. Which is interesting that Paul would say that because Paul is arguably the most obedient human being you can look up in the Bible aside from Jesus. One time Paul was writing a letter and he just decided to name how obedient he's been to the law. This is not like a guy who backslides. This is a guy who spent his whole life disciplining himself to obey God. And he says, yeah, dead, gratifying the desires of our flesh. Why? Because it's possible to be morally restrained but not spiritually changed. I want to tell some of you who grew up in a more legalistic background, it's possible to be morally restrained but not spiritually changed. It's possible to have like a hold on your tongue and make yourself look good before everybody else and not have sex before you're married and not have the transformative power of Jesus on the inside of you. 
Because Paul would say, whether you're immoral or moral, your problem's the same. You're dead. So all of your efforts to please God, dead. All of your disobedience against God, dead. They're all fruits of the same condition. And I'm not saying because of that our response needs to be disobedience against God. I'm just saying you need to know today you're not the collection of all of the good things you've ever done before God. You are born into a condition that, I'll just say this, you didn't ask for it, but you shared in it. Your brokenness is something that you did not, you did not like wake up one day and go, I want to live in a world where racism and wars and sex trafficking exists and people are dying of starvation every day and just awful things happening everywhere all the time. Like you didn't wake up and go, this is the reality I want to be born into. But that shouldn't make you look at God and go, God, you're unjust. That should make you look at the Bible and go, wow, this thing is true. The condition that you see all around you is a reflection of what the Bible says. This is why the world is this way. And one of the things that we're trying to do at ACC, especially from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is give a worldview of everything that's happening around you that sees things through the lens of the gospel. And you start to go, oh, that's why it's like this. That's why they're like this. That's why this stuff happens. Being spiritually dead has this cost. Now, Miles, why are you spending all this time on what it means to be spiritually dead? Because you won't have gratitude for salvation if you don't feel the weight of that sometimes. You won't sing out if you don't know what you've been saved from. Have you ever been delivered from something that you didn't deserve to be delivered from? Your awareness of the consequences of what you were delivered from directly equals the gratitude that you express. Translation, the way some of you worship says very little about what you believe to be true in the gospel. And that's not to like judge your personality or go, oh, you got to join the hand-raising movement at Auburn Community Church. I'm not saying that. Be yourself. But I am saying if you know Jesus, fix your face. And like respond to what's been given to you. Somewhere Matt Cole is like, amen. Um, <laughs> respond to what's been given to you with the lifestyle of gratitude. Now we'll get to the good stuff. You guys ready? Verse 4. But because, if you have ESV, it's even better. It says, but God. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is golden. Paul says God gets involved, and he brings his personhood, which we're going to talk about in one second, rich in mercy, and makes us alive with Christ Jesus. The beauty of this passage is that every tense is written in past tense about you. God made us alive. God raised us from the dead. The peace you need to get in the sight of a holy God today comes from knowing you're not waiting to be saved one day. This has fully been given to you based upon the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus' tomb was empty, if you are in Christ, so is yours. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, that is where your life is and your salvation stands forever. So feel the weight of this. For God to kick you out of his family, if you are in Christ today, Jesus would have to be taken off of his throne and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You're safe. That's never going to happen. And the gospel is our ultimate confirmation that we have been brought 
from death to life by what? By Jesus standing as our substitute. When God got involved, he couldn't help but overflow from the riches of his mercy expressed in kindness to us and go, here's what I'm going to do. While they're dead and separate from me, I'm going to send my son as a sacrifice in their place. And when he raised, when he is raised from the dead, the same power that did that for him is going to live in them. And one day you will be united with Christ forever and ever. But in a sense, you're already there. In God's economy, your position eternally is already firmly secure at the right hand of God. So, translation, God's not watching you seeing whether or not you earn heaven today. When you ask God where your life sits eternally, if you are in Christ, only if you are in Christ, it's already secure. Wherever Jesus is, that's where you are. And however invincible Jesus is, that's how invincible you are. You're if you're a Christian, you're literally indestructible in the sight of God. You have gone from deserving of wrath to the position of his son. And so, when I get the question, why is Auburn Community Church so intense in the way we worship and preach? Here's my answer in a low-volume sentence. Because we believe what I just said. If you heard what I just said and go, we actually believe that that's true. Our whole lives, our whole church, our whole existence is a thank you response to believing that that's actually true. So what is the gospel? The gospel is God is glorious, humanity is lost, Jesus is merciful, and now God has made a way and given us the Holy Spirit on the inside of us to live out this mission and share this news with all the world. Gospel means good news. An imperative in saying gospel is sharing it. So all we do the rest of our lives is enjoy the sonship that we've been given in Jesus and share it with the world, and then we'll be in heaven forever. And that's why we sing the way that we do. That's why I preach the way that I do. That's why we are leaning into the needs of the world the way that we are. That's why church exists. We believe the gospel. There is power in the gospel. And if you've never heard it proclaimed like that, I just believe today that for some of you, maybe that's the very first time, you're able to make sense of the world, but you're also able to make sense of your life. Now, here's where I want to live with the, with the moments that we have left. Too many times when we talk about the gospel and we read a passage like this, we go, problem, we're lost, solution, God is merciful, awesome. And in a sense, that's complete. But instead of just giving you that and praying out and going, how awesome is God, let's enjoy this, I wanted to camp out on verse 4 where you get to see who God is. So we know why we're saved and we know how we're saved, but I want you to know who is it that is saving you? Like who is he really? And I'm going to read verses 4 through the beginning of verse 5. I'm going to read it in ESV. I went back and forth about whether or not to preach from NIV or ESV this week. And I know some of y'all love ESV. Some of y'all love other translations. Here's my thing about Bible translations. I memorized a lot of scripture in NIV growing up. And so that's kind of my go-to translation. It's great. Accurate to the original language, but also very accessible in the English language. The English Standard Version is more accurate to the clauses that are written in Hebrew and Greek. So if you want something closer to the original translation, ESV is great. But if you're reading the Bible and you're like, I just need color behind this, I need more context, I actually think the NLT is pretty powerful, the New Living Translation. But people ask me, like, which version of the Bible, of those three, would you recommend? Here's my answer, the one you read the most. Like whichever one you're actually going to read and engage in, that would be awesome. Here's ESV, though. You ready? But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. It's a big deal that Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, not becoming rich in mercy. Look up here and do not miss this. God didn't become rich in mercy because you had a need. God is rich in mercy because it's who he is. And it didn't have to be this way. You guys know if you're God, you can be whoever you want to be. But God has a personhood. And when we read a passage like this, I think that poverty view of the mercy of God causes us to miss this. God is rich in mercy. Even when you hear me say that, you're picturing possessions. And you're going to be rich in something is to have a lot of it. So if you're rich, you have a lot of money. You have a lot of stuff. If you're rich in whatever, it, it means the accumulation of a particular possession. And that would be true, but the problem with that is if you believe God is rich in mercy just because he has a lot of it, then there's a part of your brain that thinks even if he has a lot of it, if he continues to distribute it, he could run out. But here's the good news. Mercy is not something God has. Mercy is who God is. And so for God to distribute mercy, he doesn't lose anything. He actually gains more of who he is because he gets an opportunity to use it. If he's rich in mercy, you are only growing his fortune by being in need, not diminishing it. And this is the best news about the gospel. It's not just we were dead, now we're alive. It's this is who God is. God could have been anyone, and he decided to be rich in mercy. He didn't even decide because he doesn't make decisions like that. He just is this way, and he can't help it. It's his loving kindness that sustains us because here's here's the weakness in just preaching the gospel as an eternal story the weakness is what do i do with the fact that even though god saved me i'm still messed up that's great i've been made alive forever with jesus i still do a lot of things like the dead person who the bible claims has already been put off i still got a lot of things about my old nature that are holding on and oh yeah i'm still in an expiring dying body what does the gospel give me to sustain me between now and the day I'm in the presence of God? And here's the good news. The gospel doesn't give you mercy as a thing. It gives you mercy as God. God is the one who sustains you. And so as you spend your life continuing to need him more and more and more, you're not taking anything from him in this moment. You're actually giving him an opportunity to be who he is. So stop having a poverty view of the mercy of God and start seeing the mercy of God as something he wants to distribute. He wants you to be needy today. This is a paradigm shift for me. I've read a lot of books in 2020 that have changed my life. One of them is a book called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. And I don't even really know how I stumbled on this book. I think somebody just sent it to me one day and I, just, I was kind of intrigued because the writer was saying that he was going to look at Puritan scholarship and try to argue that God's tendencies toward wrath are unnatural to him. And the argument of this book through Puritan preaching and teaching is in God's heart of hearts, he's slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. He has to distribute wrath toward sin because he's holy. But if you looked at his natural disposition toward you, who he really is in his heart of hearts is a God who is rich in mercy. And so I was on the beach with my wife back in July, and I was reading, uh, I think chapter 17 in this book is about this passage, rich in mercy. And I'm covering my face 
with the book and like kicking the sand on the ground. And my wife is like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I'm trying not to let everyone who's out here, which by the way, COVID slowed a lot of things down, not 30A at all. There's people everywhere. And so I'm sitting there, I'm kicking the sand on the ground, covering my eyes going, I don't want everybody to see that I'm bawling my eyes out reading leisurely on a beach because the richness of what this book teaches is so powerful, but it's also so profound. I want to read you a quote from it because this encouraged me. I mean, this in the book that I have, there's, there's marks from the tears of reading the words I'm about to read to you. This is an interpretation of Ephesians 2.4. He writes this, he, God, is a fountain of mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. How can that be? Because mercy is who he is. If mercy were something he simply had, while his deepest nature was something different, there would be a limit on how much mercy he could dole out. But if he is essentially merciful, then for him to pour out mercy is for him to act in accord with who he is. It is simply for him to be God. When God shows mercy, he is acting in a way that is true to himself. If you come to God with a need, there is no part of that relationship where you're kind of tugging on his arm to provide for you or to show up for you or to be present with you. That need is actually the context for which he loves to distribute his fortune. And the more he gives to you mercy, the more he receives from it because he's truly merciful. And so the translation in the life of a believer is stop trying to view spiritual maturity as arriving at a point where you don't need God. And start accepting that spiritual maturity is developing into more of an awareness of God, I need you more than I thought I needed you yesterday. I need you more for my next breath than I can even give you credit for with a song. Because if you don't give it, I don't take it in. And our awareness of our need grows over time so that what? So that we become more desperate. And so that we, we stop running from our need and start running toward it as we mature in Christ. Here's my whole message in two sentences. ACC, stop trying to graduate from being needy. God is rich in mercy. Stop trying to graduate to a level of spiritual maturity where you don't have to fall on your face before God and rely on him for whatever you need next. Now let's stay in that space. Let's stay desperate. Why? Because as the scriptures say, his mercies are new every morning and they're multifaceted. When you wake up in the morning, there's something different you're going to need tomorrow than you need for today. But God's mercies for today aren't for tomorrow. They're for today. So who is God to you today? He is in the space of need that you find yourself sitting in today. He's a God of hope and forgiveness for the guy or girl, man or woman within the sound of my voice that can't handle the shame that's barreling down on them right now. That's where the hug is today from God. And he only hugs tighter as the sin grows greater because he loves you. What space is he in for the marriage that's on the rocks. He's in a space of reconciliation and a new day beyond whatever you thought possible. What space is he in for the discouraged, for the apathetic? He's right there with you and ready to bring you out of it and open the eyes of your heart to a breakthrough. What space is he in for somebody who's in the room and going, I don't understand all this, but my heart is bubbling over with emotion because I can't wait to see what God is doing next. He's in that excitement with you. His mercy gives him the capacity to be with you in your hour of need, whatever that hour looks like. And it's different for different days, but it's always rooted in love. I love that it talks about because of his great love for us. Why did God save me? 
because he like loved me a lot. It was, um, th- there was this one Easter at Auburn Community Church where I did a sermon that, that got heavily criticized because I talked about um, God saving you because he loves you. And I guess I hadn't read Ephesians 2, like that, that it comes all back to right here. But we love to make a big deal of the glory of God and go, no, God saved us for his glory. Yes, he loves us, but he's just glorious. No, the context of God's glory happens because he's so loving toward you. And so when, when God did what he did for you in Jesus, when God did what he did for you in Easter, God views that as something mind-blowing that he benefits from. That's how great his love is for you and how much he wants to be united to you. And you don't hear that and go, that's a man-centered view of salvation. That's a God-centered view of salvation because as God makes much of himself, he makes much of his children. It's beautiful. It's love. And then there's this, and this is another line from that book. Do you all want to like go get this book tomorrow, by the way? I mean, it will have you bawling your eyes out every chapter. Here's what, here's what this guy wrote about the love of God for us. And this is going to mess with some of your views of grace, but I hope it does. <laughs> of course I do. His love is great because it surges forward all the more when the beloved is threatened, even if threatened as a result of its own folly. We understand this on a human level. An earthly father's love rises up within when he sees his child accused or afflicted. Even if justly accused or deservingly afflicted, Renewed affection boils up within. So some of you are sitting here needing mercy from God today. And the reason you need mercy is because it's your fault. And you're going, those those examples all sound good. But what about the guy? What about the girl? What about the man? What about the woman who sits here today? Rightly so. You're ashamed because of what you did. Rightfully so. You're at the end of yourself. And it's all your fault. This was so great about love. Love actually boils up and overflows the more the need grows, regardless of the context of that need. So pay attention to this. If you're married, if you're a parent, if, if you're a sibling, if you have somebody in your life who you would view to be closer to you than anyone in the world, think about that person, okay? In the context of your relationship with them, if they have ever done something wrong, And what they did wrong revealed a deeper level of hurt. Does that cause you to draw away from them or press in, even if it's their fault? So like with my wife, Courtney, a couple times this year, we've had some arguments that have revealed some deeper level things for both of us. And some moments where something was her fault and definitely some moments where something was my fault. And it was like one of those marriage fights where one person is so clearly in the wrong. And it's like, we just got to get to that apology faster because that, I mean, what, what, that, that was off, okay? And so when the person who is off comes back and, and displays a part of their heart and go, goes, here's why. Here's what I'm hurting in. Here's what's happening on the inside of me. Do you know what happens to the other person? It draws them in even more. And so you go, why why would you be drawn in by love when the context is being sinned against? Because that's what love is. Every parent in the room who's had a kid walk away from God or has sent a child off to college and wondered whether or not they were going to follow God, it's not their running away from God that causes your love to be diminished. It's your concern for them that causes your love to go to exponentially higher degrees because you know they're walking away. God's love for you doesn't become greater, but it definitely boils up with affection when he knows that you're hurt and when he knows that you're in need. 
So stop coming for the thousandth time with your need and going, I, I know we've talked about this so many times and I know I promised you so many times that I was gonna get better and I'm not. But can we just have this conversation one more time? This is what I mean by a poverty view of mercy. You're like, you're kind of running low, aren't you? You're kind of getting tired of me, aren't you? You're kind of wanting me to graduate to a new level of faithfulness and God's knowing, this is like the reason I wrote the story. This is what I love to do as your dad. The context of why you need God today is not what's important to him. The fact that you need God today is what's important to him. So eliminate all the reason why God can't meet with you in this moment. And just straight up come to him with your need. Why? Because as great love rises, rich mercy descends. As God's love for you rises, mercy falls. And now you're drawn into a connection with him. And now you see the context of your relationship with him was never supposed to mature beyond the simple pursuit of his love and grace and mercy. And this would be a beautiful point to wrap up. And I'm going to ask Sam or the band to go ahead and come up here because I'm almost done. But I haven't even got to the best part. I told our team this week, I said, we get the honor and privilege of representing God for thousands of people. And I didn't say it with arrogance. I said it with, oh, let's watch out, guys. What we are doing is heavy stuff. And I said, I've never had a message that I think represents God better than this one. It's like, this is, this is the truth about who God is. But when you see what you're about to see in this passage, you just might lose your mind. And you just might join in with this song of worship before I even pray. And that's okay. Listen to this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And if you put a microphone in front of God's face and said, hey God, why did you do that? Why did you save them? What was the meaning of this? It's right here in verse seven. In order, here's the why, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God, why'd you save them? Because I'm rich in mercy and for all of eternity, I want to show off how loaded I am. Don't, don't, you're making that up right there. It's right there. God saved you so that the context of his glory in heaven would be his abounding mercy. Heaven is God showing you around his home going, look how much I have. But don't think annoying rich guy with a lot of stuff. Don't think like, oh, look at this, my house, and look at this car, and look, I got this, I got this. Don't think that. It's not arrogance. This is God eternally going, I love being able to provide the riches of my mercy for my kids, and the glory of heaven will be God showing off for all of eternity how kind he's been to you. This is what God is looking forward to about heaven. Going, look how kind I am. Look how graceful I am. Look at how merciful I am. Look at how much I'm able to provide for the needs of my kids. And the only response for somebody who knows what they're looking at is, thank you, Jesus. You are our only hope and you are our everything. And I'll tell you this, when you get to heaven, you won't think about your sin in the context of regret. You will not look at the mess you've made of your life at times and go, I regret that so much. When you get to heaven, you will look at your sin with relief 
because whatever view you had of mercy, this side of heaven was so small compared to how rich his mercies are for those who are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, now is the time to step into the family of God. Would you stand up all over this place? We're gonna sing a song that's the heart of the gospel and we're gonna pray that people get saved in this moment, right here, right now. Would you bow your head? If you're here in this space and you would say, Miles, I wanna be a Christian. I wanna know that God that you're talking about, the God who's rich in mercy, who sent Jesus to die for me. I want you to pray a simple prayer. I want you to pray, Jesus, I give you my life. You'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those who are coming to you for the very first time, for those who are gonna be baptized because of what you're doing in this moment. But God, even more than that, I thank you for how you're providing supernaturally for every need that's in this room. God, would you make the riches of your mercy so tangible as we sing, so tangible as we praise, so tangible as we go forward from this place. And would you never let us return to an impoverished view of who you are. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for loving us first. We give you honor. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church. Let's sing.